Goodbye door handles. You were taken too soon. Yes, this week on Download This Show, automated doors, disinfecting robots and all of the other ways in which post-COVID offices may be built differently, maybe even virtually, because Mark Zuckerberg has a plan to turn your next work meeting into a weird virtual reality thing. And how concerned should you be about the security of your vaccination certificate? And the world of adult entertainment and sex work is getting a major shake-up from an unexpected source. All that and much more coming up. This is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. My name is Mark Fennell and welcome to Download This Show. Yes, indeed, it is a brand new episode of Download the Show coming to you from a number of lockdown houses. Natasha Gillizzo, tech media and marketing writer with the Australian Financial Review. Welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. And Joshua Taylor from The Guardian. Welcome back to Download the Show. Great to be back on in lockdown. (laughs) (laughs) The never-ending lockdowns. Uh, All right, now, look, just a heads up, you may have gleaned this from the intro, but we are going to be talking about some adult concepts. The world of pornography is where we're going to first in the show. So if you have small children in the car, you've been warned. We're not going to say anything terribly graphic, but, you know, it's still a topic you might want to be aware of because OnlyFans have uh, done something very dramatic to, I want to say, one of their core cohorts, Natasha. Yeah, totally. So OnlyFans, the London headquartered app, has come out and said that due to pressure from some of its payments providers, it's going to ban pornographic content from the app, which has until now kind of been the mainstay or the main hub of content that its creators produce. Mm. Why is this happening, Josh? The short of it is uh, pressure from uh, banking companies and particularly MasterCard and, and things like that. So it's interesting if you go back, there's been quite a long campaign, particularly targeted at the banking providers, to go after businesses like OnlyFans and Pornhub and things like that over the content that they host on their site, basically saying, you know, we'll stop allowing you to process payments on your platform if you don't conform to our, our um, expectations of what content you host on those platforms. So it looks like, you know, they, they tried it with um, Pornhub, which is which is owned by MindGeek. They, they went after them a while ago and... It resulted in Pornhub deleting tens of millions of unverified videos from its site. Now they've essentially sort of said that OnlyFans is, is facing the same sort of sustained campaign, and, and you know it, it does sort of you can you can trace it back to quite religious lobby groups, you know, in the US, basically trying to force tech companies, I guess, to take more of responsibility in in, in terms of hosting adult content online, and, and I guess this is the next stage of it. See, this is what I find fascinating, right? Because the Pornhub stuff I, I kind of understood, right, because one of the arguments they put up was there was a whole bunch of content on, on Pornhub that was exploitation material, revenge porn that should never have been posted there, image-based abuse. I understood that argument. But the really interesting thing about OnlyFans is if OnlyFans is a subscription service where literally porn performers, adult content performers can own their own relationship with their subscriber, right? It actually does, it's almost like an antidote to Pornhub. Whereas Pornhub kind of took money away from adult performers, OnlyFans is actually returning all this agency back to performers. So the argument to stop supporting OnlyFans is sort of like, I I find it fascinating because it's sort of like this is a group of people for whom 
Pornhub has destroyed their income stream, Natasha, but OnlyFans was like finally giving people in that in that industry some agency over their their bodies, their economics, only to have it, the rug pulled out from underneath them. I, I, the logic of it's really fascinating. Totally. I mean, OnlyFans did a really good job at using some of that empowerment and personal agency type language to um, set up what they were doing uh, as really credible in the marketplace. I think one of the interesting things, and I kind of looked into the economics of the platform in and of itself, is that while that is the promise of the the platform, and I think that it does create a direct relationship between the consumer and the performer in, in a really interesting and positive way, especially if you compare other sex work environments, the actual earnings of the creators in practice on the on the platform really follow a power law distribution, which means that the top 20% of accounts were making a lot of money, but the average account made nothing. To be more precise on those kind of figures, I found some figures that said the top accounts could make 100K a month, that's in US dollars, but the median account made $180. So if we dig a little deeper, that means that in the bottom 50% of creators, that they will, would be losing money, right? Because to be posting that content, taking the time to develop relationships, advertise across Reddit, Twitter, wherever else they go to find potential subscribers or fans, the hours that they were putting into it, they weren't getting a return on their investment there. So that is the promise um, in terms of the potential relationship that the creators could create with their subscribers um, is what they're called on the OnlyFans platform. But in practice, it wasn't necessarily so for all creators. And that's okay, right? You know, they were taking a risk. They were taking a chance in terms of producing that. Another really interesting thing to note about the economics of the platform, though, is that OnlyFans takes a 20% revenue cut. So from the OnlyFans perspective, the most valuable creators to them really are those top performers and top earners. Because if you're earning like 20% revenue cut of someone making 20 bucks, that's only $4, right? But if it's someone making 200000 that's $40,000. That's where as a company you're going to care about. You're going to care about those top performers. So it's interesting from that perspective. One other thing, and I don't know if you guys know about this, but OnlyFans also operated on a referral bonus model. So the platform got a bit of criticism in terms of whether or not it was really that empowering and that creators could refer other people onto the platform. And if they were able to attract other predominantly female performers, they would get 5% of that future performer's earnings. And that would be reduced from OnlyFans 20% cut. So some people were worried that, you know, you ended up getting a bit of a Ponzi scheme happening in Mm. that the performers were not just incentivized to create a good relationship with their paying subscribers, but they were incentivized to go out onto Twitter, onto YouTube, onto TikTok. I saw a lot of these videos on TikTok to encourage other women to sign up and start posting that kind of content because they got a direct financial kickback from that. So the empowerment and agency piece is really interesting because there's different context and analysis that could be put around that. But yeah, that, that's, that's I, some of the aspects. I guess the best comparison I kind of have here is it's OnlyFans sort of sits halfway between YouTube, like the relationship YouTubers have with their subscribers and something like Pornhub, right? And obviously like Pornhub is very bad <laughs> for, for actual porn performers because often stuff's pirated. Whereas I guess one of the things I'm curious about is like how would it compare, Josh, to the relationship that a, a YouTuber would have with their audience? I think it's probably somewhere in the middle between those two. I think that's right. They take a really hands-off approach in terms of the content um, creators on those platforms. They're not sort of seeking to to foster them or nurture them. I think that comes back to the fact that the most successful ones tend to be adult performers and they've kind of sort of had a turn, turn a blind eye to, to what that 
aspect of the platform is about, even though it's what everyone knows OnlyFans for. So I think that's they've kind of tried to have it both ways for quite a while, where they're trying to gain what they seem see as legitimacy amongst you know the corporates that aren't going to be supporting, I guess, a site that mainly hosts pornography, versus um, trying to to develop this platform at the same time. It's it's a really difficult situation for them to be in. And you know, if they're trying to be a bigger company, they see this as the next step, and unfortunately. It means cutting off their, their biggest revenue base and the reason people know they exist. So I wouldn't be surprised if they, you know, change their mind at some point. Or um, we see stories in, in uh, a little while about how OnlyFans has been sold off for much lower than its asking price. I think an important difference also to note about the platform dynamics at play between a YouTube and an OnlyFans is that YouTube has to appeal to big corporate advertisers like a Procter & Gamble, like a Zoom, like a whatever your big spenders are because those are the, the players placing the ads, whereas OnlyFans, theoretically, the creators should have much more editorial independence in what they decide to put on their, their channels. Um, and, it, you know, as Josh alluded to, that's why lobby groups have gotten involved. They're not really in the picture but they've decided to get involved for, you know, a morality lens, a paternalism lens, a greater good lens, whatever their argument or angle is. But theoretically, OnlyFans creators should have had like the most autonomy over what they did and didn't want to produce. And the platform itself could have just live and let live, basically. But that hasn't been the case. Is this about becoming a, a less porn-centric brand? Is, is that what the, what's happening here, Natasha? I think that could work. I mean, I was thinking before today's show, like if I was in the shoes of the OnlyFans executive, what would I do? And I guess you would cop the heat from this now. Just wipe the accounts of your bottom 80% creators. They probably create some legal issues for you anyway in terms of those, you know, people always talk about minors and debates about sex, but potentially those kind of issues. I don't know how true that is in this case. And then really go and form really good relationships with your top 20% creators and see if there's a way that they could adapt their content or make it still work and still be profitable. And that could be kind of interesting. Like an OnlyFans 2.0, you could relaunch. Because it is a bit of a headache clearing up accounts that are creating dramas for you or potential legal issues for you or content moderation issues. Like you do have to take a responsibility as a platform there and protect those people. So there's possibilities for like a relaunch here for sure. I mean, the platform was doing really, 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 really well. So I don't think it'll die in the water. Um, I think it'll just take some really careful strategic planning. It's interesting as well. Um, you, you think about the increasing sort of siloization and, and condensation of the internet where you have a whole bunch of large big tech companies making decisions on how on what people should see online and what people should be able to do online. This is this is kind of a little bit of an extension of the argument that everyone sort of has around Facebook around determining what can be on that platform and, and what can't. For OnlyFans creators, this is the easiest way that they have to set up a, a business and, and make an income on their sex work without having to go through the rigmarole of, of you know, going in and establishing your own website and hosting your own server and all that sort of stuff. So as, as we sort of see like this, this condensation of, the, I guess, the siloing of the internet in, in, in a bunch of smaller companies, this is one of those offshoots for it. And it's there's no sort of easy solution where someone who wants to be a sex worker can easily sort of set up a service and make it easier for people to pay them and things like that. So it's, it's a disappointing, you know, the, the way that sort of corporate morality is stepping in in a lot of ways here. This isn't the first, and I suspect it won't be the last time we see it. I know Tumblr went through a similar sort of purging. What was the result of that? I mean, where did those people go, people that had adult content on, on their Tumblrs? Like, where did they go? 
Twitter. <laughs> Tumblr, like uh, a Tumblr, like it was pretty. It was a pretty different situation, though. I reported on this when I first joined the Fin Review when Tumblr first banned porn. So it would have been, you know, late 2019, early 2020. The thing is that people are drawing the comparison between OnlyFans and Tumblr, but I don't think that's right here because basically OnlyFans had the monetization piece ready, locked and loaded from the get-go. Tumblr was this awesome blog with like all these various subcultures, one of which was, you know, around sexual content, but that certainly wasn't all of it. That was created by these guys who were just good at internet. It gets bought by Yahoo and then Yahoo didn't know what to do with this website. They knew it had mass. They knew it had an audience. They knew it was liked and it had cultural clout, but they didn't know what to do. So they decided to make the decision to change the content policy sort of post facto. Unlike when Instagram was established, it had a no nudity policy from the get-go. Tumblr sort of, you know, their their new corporate parent decided to do that. But it wasn't – it was sort of like a failed business in that sense. Amazing cultural place, amazing place to go on the internet. I spent hours and hours on Tumblr when I was younger, connecting with people around the world, in the DMs, learning new things. But I, I, I think it's a false precedent to look at what happened to Tumblr when the Yahoo corporate team made the decision to remove porn from that site as the sort of like precursor to what will happen with OnlyFans because they're pretty different and, and we're at a pretty different point in internet history as well. I guess in some ways I actually think the comparison to between Tumblr and, and Pornhub actually makes more sense simply because one of the other issues I was trying to deal with was kind of content that was being uploaded against people's wishes or against without their knowledge, pirated content yes. that was being uploaded by people that didn't own yes. it. Like Tumblr had a problem with that and that's more simple. Yes. Whereas, again, just to come back to comparison to, to OnlyFans, like OnlyFans, again, is the exact opposite, right? It's like it mm-hmm. is, you know, mm-hmm. porn performers having a direct relationship with their users, which makes the decision here, at least from a, a user standpoint, even more confusing, Tash. Yeah, you can't reblog on OnlyFans. In fact, there's anti-screenshot technology built into it, whereas on Tumblr you reblogged, which if you didn't use Tumblr is kind of the equivalent of retweeting or resharing content. So there was also just like those copyright issues because it traded on virality to help grow audience and content. So yeah, they're different. I think it just comes down to the constant problem we're seeing with all these platforms is that they create these ways for people to generate content and then decide that the moderation side of it is too hard and, and decide to cut off aspects of it. And, that, that you know, we see that time and time again. Mm. Oh, well, download this show is what you're listening to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. Natasha Gillisov is from the Australian Financial Review. Josh Taylor is from The Guardian. And Mark Fennell is from here, your radio. And very soon, many of us are going to need to have vaccination certificates. But just how easy are they to fake, Josh? Well, it looks like it's pretty easy to do. There's a, there's a software engineer uh, who you know was talking to the ABC. He, he it took him around ten minutes to do it himself. And others have had a look at it and said it's a pretty big security flaw uh, in the uh, Medicare app that could be easily fixed. So uh, it sounds like it you know sensibly not many people are sort of talking about the process of doing it because we don't want to sort of encourage people to be going out and faking their vaccine certificates. But it's it's one of those things that. Um, you know, we see this time and time again, particularly around um, the development of, of software around COVID. I'm, I keep thinking of the COVID Safe app, where they'll put something out. You know, people who actually know how these things are supposed to work will have a look at it and go, "Nah, there's something wrong here." And then the government will sort of grumble about it and then go away and fix it. So that seems to be what's happening in this case. I guess the question to be asked here is like, if you look at the track record of things like the COVID Safe app, 
such as it is. What's the likelihood that this is a fixable thing that they can get sorted? Because really at the moment, you know, the vast majority of Australians haven't been double vaxxed yet. Is it something they're likely to be able to get fixed, Tash, before the bulk of Australia does actually need these passes? I'd assume so, right? Like, I don't know how they verify your license or credit cards, but that kind of authentication or verification piece of uh, building out that bit of technology seems pretty key to me. It's, you know, it's about building the trust piece in. So I assume someone can fix it. Like, it seems fixable to me if they're able to do it with all these other aspects of our identity and payments info and, and the like. So passports, I just assume it would be the same. Mm. I, guess, well, I guess the easiest way to, to do it is so currently it sits in, a, in your wallet. It looks like a or your, your phone wallet. It looks like a little animation saying you've had the, the COVID vaccine. The easiest thing is just put a QR code on it or something that would make it easy for people to then scan and verify that, you know, you've officially had the vaccine. I think that's probably the easiest solution. You know, I think also in Australia, we, we live in such a kind of incre- generally speaking pretty incredibly uh, democratic and free society that we really take for granted social institutions working and people being honest and generally speaking as a citizenry we we have quite high standards in terms of trust and, and facts being facts which I liked that that was the general response from people although of course there was a little bit of eye rolling like you know can't the federal government get anything to do with tech tech right which is also very fair but I like that people expect that the vaccine verification should be should be factual. <laughs> it's like it's a very low bar in some ways, isn't it? I, I think there's people yeah, sort of have... Yeah, there are lower bars out there, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I, Josh, you were saying? Again to, again, to come back to COVID safe, I think people just have really low expectations after how badly that app has performed. Yeah. All right. Well, staying on the, uh, the COVID-themed chat, at some point in the next five to seven years, we will re-enter offices in some way, shape or form. The question is, will those offices look the same? And it seems like it, it probably won't. There's been a raft of new innovations around the world examining exactly what offices of the future are going to look like. Are you going to have disinfectant robots? Are you going to have thermal body scanners every time you enter a building? And, and it's also worth pointing out, we're already starting to see this stuff. We're starting to see these innovations built into buildings in Europe and Asia right now. So Natasha, before I'm allowed back into an office, what are the sorts of things that is going to change? What are the sorts of things that are going to look different for the offices of the future in a post-COVID universe? Well, definitely a lot less door handles, but taking it to kind of the next level of innovation, we've got things like self-cleaning surfaces, antimicrobial paint, air monitoring display tools, uh, UV light disinfectant robots, and other measures to help with the sanitization and hygiene efforts, both from a purely scientific levels, but also there's this company in uh, in Europe called Immune. It's also about emotional reassurance. So it's not just necessarily about the science. It's also about kind of making sure that workers' uh, natural and understandable fears that their OHS conditions aren't up to scratch are sort of assuaged by those visible <laughs> displays of cleanliness. So there's two pieces to it. There's there's actually reducing risk of infection by going to work in an office. And then there's also trying to chill people out. Right. In some of the technology that's been sort of batted around, Josh, what are the ones that stand out to you as being particularly interesting, let's say? I think like a lot of the UV sort of, you know, checking robots and things like that are probably quite interesting. I think they're kind of very much at the peripheral, though. I feel like most of the innovations that we're going to see are kind of going to be things that we're already doing. I think you're going to see a lot more people working from home. So there's going to be a lot of mm-hmm. accounting for that. And that will, I think that will change like 
how offices look and how offices are structured. The interesting thing about that is like, what is going to happen with hot desking? I know like hot desking you'd think would become a thing of a part thing of the past with, um, with COVID now, because no one wants to be sharing a desk with someone who may have potentially had COVID. But if more people are working from home, how, you know, how are you going to account for, for office space and things like that? I think that's going to be sort of the real interesting thing, you know, when people start go back to the office. It's, it's interesting with the thing about hot desking, right? Cause I remember we talked about it on last year back when, you know, we thought COVID was dead. And it felt like hot desking was like very much a thing of the past now. But I think what I've what's sort of changed in the last six months is this real understanding about aerosol transmission being such a primary way in which diseases transfer and less services, which is really the sort of thing that hot desking would be vulnerable to. So in that sense, it feels like it hot desking or the, the disposal of hot desking isn't like the priority as much as, you know, air conditioning units and other sorts of things would be. But tell me if I'm wrong, Natasha. No, I think that's correct. I mean, the the COVID-19 virus is relatively new. The Delta variant is relatively new. And anyone who's, whether you're a commercial real estate baron or an architect or uh, responsible in some form or another for for what workplaces look like, all you can really do is work off the best available science at the time, right? And that's that's evolving and changing once once new science emerges about what best practices are going to be. I'm not a scientist or an expert in, in virology, so I'm only going off what the latest and greatest available conclusions are in the same way that those kind of people are in terms of working out, you know, what, what workplaces could look like. But, but, but that's both in terms of like from an antiviral point of view, but, but also in terms of, okay, how best can we make this hybrid work situation work for, for other things like us just being happy and feeling socially connected and making sure that our remote working friends still feel like a part, of, a part of the company. So there's other things. For example, there's a consulting firm in the city called Peace of Mind Technology. Um, I went and checked them out. They threw an event earlier this year. There's kind of other things that they're using this uh, opportunity to, I guess, optimize for or improve when it comes to getting us back into offices, which is, which is pretty cool to think about as well. Josh, how much of this is psychological and how much of it is actually like medically going to help? I think most of it is psychological. I think, um, you know, we're, we're constantly told that, you know, nowadays, particularly in New South Wales, the vast majority of transmissions happen in workplaces or in uh, households. So people are going to want that assurance when uh, when things are opening up again, that if there is, you know, even though, you know, there, there will be a point where there will be cases ongoing, we'll probably not be paying as much attention to case numbers, but people will know that every like every workplace is sort of taking a, a level of precaution. And the other thing I think they've got to work, uh, that businesses have to work through is um, their, their own safety thing. You know, we've seen the government come out and say, you know, they're not going to, they're going to sort of change regulation so that people won't, the companies won't potentially face lawsuits if they're not mandating their workers to get vaccinated. Well, you, you're probably going to need to have some level of, of, I guess, safety and protection in your workplace to make sure that, uh, the risk of getting COVID in a workplace is much reduced. So I think a lot of the technology we're starting to see pop up around that will be sort of implemented along those lines. And speaking of workplaces where you don't actually have to go into work, uh, <laughs> Facebook have unveiled a virtual reality workspace app called Horizon Workrooms, which if you want to imagine what it's like to do a staff meeting in The Sims, this is sort of what it looks and feels like. Josh, describe for me, they've put out a bunch of videos where you can kind of see what it's like, but you basically put on a virtual reality headset and then what do you see, Josh? It's, it's basically, yeah, you've got little wrist things as well and it looks like you're in, uh, you know, you you described the Sims, I think it's a little bit more like those um, 
amiibo characters you see on Nintendo Switch. Like they're, they're yes. not very good. No, that's much better. Much better than my thing. <laughs> you tell how like few games I've played in the last twenty years. Uh, they're, yeah, they're not very good um, design characters, and it's designed to replicate looking in an office. And I, I just hate this so much. Like, you know, of all the things Facebook could be doing now, it could be pouring resources into better moderation so your uncle doesn't fall down the QAnon rabbit hole. But instead, we get this, like, this, you know, have some AI. They need to focus less on, you know, virtual reality and make our reality a bit better, I think. <laughs> Sasha, what do you think? Is there any circumstance in which you would use this over Zoom? Oh God! Um, hmm. 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 <laughs> it's the hmm that says everything there. No, I don't think so. I don't think so. I mean, yeah. Look, Mark Zuckerberg on his latest earnings call, he was like really juiced about this whole metaverse thing. That was kind of the main topic of conversation. So this has clearly caught his attention. And I guess Oculus is a part of the business that they just haven't cracked like it just it was you know originally they were going to diversify their ad revenue away from just ad revenue and into vr but i think their oculus headset still only count for two percent of the business no one's really cracked vr yet but i guess it's coming um it makes sense that you know one of the biggest tech SARS in the world is is having a go at it with his existing technology and assets to me it kind of seems like a mashing together of like hot topic news trend, like work from home and how to make it work, personal interest case for Mark Zuckerberg, who wants more oversight of his like Facebook employees globally, and then like the headsets that they already make. So I don't know if it really <laughs> lands outside his office, but like I could be proven wrong. It does sort of seem like the sort of thing you would come up with in a staff meeting and just say, hey, can we make it work and chuck lots of money at it? Yeah, I think it's, um, it's one of those things that, you know, I think a lot of tech... Um, entrepreneurs and, and people in the tech sector are kind of thinking, we've got the iPhone, we've got the iPhone, we've got the phone. There's only so many places we can take that. What's going to be sort of the next leap? And, you know, touchscreens didn't work for so long until they worked and now everyone uses them. So I think that, you know, someone is thinking at some point someone is going to crack this sort of VR headset, a virtual reality kind of thing, and no one's quite got there yet. So I think this is maybe the next iteration in that, but I just don't think it quite gets there yet. Yeah, you need someone like an Apple to just make the device so perfect but also kind of trendy that people want to wear these headsets. And I think right now both the utility of wearing the headset, they kind of make some people a bit sick and they also look super lame. So no one's kind of come out and cracked that. But I think if someone can do that, then, you know, people will start buying it, I guess. It kind of looks more fun than useful. You know what I mean? Like I feel like it, it looks yeah. – it, it actually just looks a bit too cute to be used for work. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But I think a lot of things do start as the what is this going to be and then eventually society works out what it's going to be. But some things also just like have a go for a while and they die off, like the Segway, right? Like what, what happened to that? Not all tech <laughs> not all tech makes it into the mainstream. My favourite is still Juicero, which was like turn Cody's Cordial into a tech bro activity. Oh, my goodness, that's hilarious. <laughs> I tell you what, that's all we've got time for on the show this week. Natasha Gillazo, tech media and marketing writer with the Australian Financial Review. Thanks so much for coming back and doing Download the Show. Oh, such a fun lockdown activity. <laughs> I know, so great. And Josh Taylor from The Guardian, thanks so much for coming back on the show. <laughs> Maybe we'll have virtual reality headsets next time. Ah, so I could forget that I'm here in my house. That'd be nice. That'd be really, really nice. Hey, uh, if you enjoy the show, make sure you leave a review on whichever podcasting app you happen to be encountering us on, and I will catch you next week. My name's Mark Fennell, and thanks for listening to another episode of Download This Show.